This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architecture meets the needs and goals of those who inhabit it. Architecture also involves a great deal of artistic skill and creative energy. And that all originates from a creative spark that starts within the architect. But does that make it art? That's what we're going to be discussing today in episode 80, is architecture art. Special thanks to Otis Elevator for their generous support of today's episode. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we are going to discuss the controversial topic of, is architecture art? For every person listening, you probably had an immediate response to this question especially if you fall into the camp of, yes, of course it's art. That's a stupid question. But (laughs) if you were to ask this question while you were out with a group of architects, I'm pretty sure a fist fight would break out. (laughs) Right? At least if you and I are there. (laughs) I don't think that, well, you mean like us against other people or you and I fighting each other? No, no, no. Us against other people, maybe. You know what? I will tell you this, and this is part of the story, but- I've asked this question a number of times over the years, and rarely does everybody agree. Rarely. Mm-hmm. Normally, yeah. 90% of the people agree, and 10% don't. And normally, that's like one. Nine people go, here's the answer, and one person goes, well, and then they downer everybody else with their high-mindedness. So I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, and I think, Andrew, you should follow suit after I do this. But I'm going to tell you right out of the gate that I do not believe that architecture is art, at least not in the traditional sense. And I'd like to think that I have an open mind and that you and I, Andrew, are going to break this down into an argument in this episode to see where we land. You know, once we kind of go through all the pros and cons and the arguments for yes and arguments for no. So we're going to review both sides of the argument as much as we are capable of arguing against the thing that we believe possibly. Yes. And then, yeah, we'll see if we reach a conclusion. I don't know. Maybe we'll change our minds. Maybe we'll change your mind. You, the listener, that is. So. Hopefully we're changing their minds because I agree. Architecture is not art. Now, I will say that it is artistic or it can be. It is creative, but it does not fit my definition of art either. Yeah. So I wonder how many people are Shooting the middle finger at their... I've already punted out from us or beat their iPod or whatever it is they're listening to. iPod? It's 19, <laughs> 1999. All right. So let's start off with the Oxford Dictionary definition of art. Let's just set a baseline. Oxford Dictionary defines art as the expression or application of human creative skill and imagination. So far, that's architecture, I would say. Typically in a visual form, such as a painting or sculpture, producing works that can be appreciated primarily for their beauty or emotional power. I'm going to tell you that that definition applies to architecture, too, right? Maybe. Well, except for the primarily. That's the word, yeah. I don't know that architecture is appreciated primarily for, because we've all seen Jiffy Lubes and strip retail along the highway exiting town. Yeah. Nobody appreciates those buildings for their beauty, right? Mm. They may not be garbage, but it's really a it's a function over form. They got to do their job primarily and then they yes. do it as cheaply as they can a lot of times. So it's definitely not primarily 
their beauty and their emotional power. But for the most part, if I say the people that actually care enough to have this conversation, they're going to think that, hey, I try to make my buildings look good. There's a whole lot of additional considerations that go into it. But in that very broad definition, I would say I couldn't exclude architecture from that definition. Okay. I'll give you. I was like, you can't nod your head. I'll give you that. You got to say it out loud. (laughs) I'll agree with that from this point. Yes. Okay. But again, that's not enough. That's not enough for me to consider architecture art. Because like we said, I think it's artistic, but there's a lot more to it. Let me just point out this. So back in August of 2010, I wrote a blog post. Now keep in mind, 2010 is when I started this blog. We're talking almost 12 years ago. I wrote this. And it was a post titled, What is Art? With the sole intention to have a dialogue about whether or not architecture is art. So at that time, I asked a handful of my friends, I reached out to them and I said, send me a piece of art, your favorite piece of art. Send me a picture of your favorite piece of art. And it was an experiment to see what people intrinsically would consider art. Like when I say, what's your favorite piece of art? How many architects would send me a picture of a building? Yeah, kind of that gut response of... Yeah, just in your gut. If I say, what's your favorite piece of art? How many architects would actually choose a building? Okay, so I got four, I asked 14 people. All 14 people sent me back their images. Do you want to guess how many of those 14? You might already know because I know you looked at this post. but I know because I looked at the post. So Yeah. yeah. Of the 14, yeah. three were buildings. I will tell you, I was surprised that there was even one. I thought that was surprising. Yeah, out of 14, I was surprised there was three. I would have gone maybe one or two. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing I thought was interesting was the three buildings. One was St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. One was the Guggenheim in Bilbao by Gary. And the third was the Blacker House in Pasadena, California by Green and Green. I mean, three wildly different project types and scales. So I go, wow, that's kind of surprising. The rest of them are what you would think. There was a couple of sculptures. There were a couple of paintings. Paintings, yeah. There was one silver pitcher that somebody made. And not surprising, that was a hobby of that person, was smithing. Oh. So they appreciated that, maybe in a way that other people wouldn't just naturally appreciate. They might look at it and go, it's beautiful. But they haven't ever tried to make one, so they don't look at it in the same depth of love as the person who who makes smithing. So A silver vessel for water is what we're talking about, right? That's exactly right. So I thought that was remarkable, quite honestly. And I will say, almost everyone who added some text to their submission spoke to how their selection made them feel. When they chose it, there was a little subtext that says, I chose this because of this reason. And it was almost always some ethereal quality that could only be described between people and never physically shared. So when I say, this is how this building made me feel, I can just like tell you what that was. I couldn't share it with you in a physical way. Yeah. Sounds terrible to say it. I don't know a better way to say it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. In the sense that it's individualized. It's an individual feeling. Yeah. Whereas you and I could stand in the cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral, and both feel something similar when standing in that space. Mm-hmm. Like we'd say, wow, you you feeling that? We'd all go, yes, yeah. I'm definitely feeling it. Like I get it. Yeah. But when I look at a painting, Caravaggio, for example, how it makes me feel might not be the same as it. You might go look at it and go. I'm looking at the technique. You might be that person that breaks down the technique, or I might be looking and going, that person looks sad, you know, or something along those lines. Or somebody else is going, oh, look at the light and the way that it works. And 
So what I thought was interesting when I wrote that post back in August of 2010, I have all these old architectural forum magazines from the 30s, mm-hmm. which were really cool. They're big and they were spiral bound mm-hmm. and there were like 200 pages and they were really, really nice documents, nice magazines to have. I loved them myself. And so one of the things that I found was this quote, which was kind of wacky to find in there, but it had to do with this guy's definition, a guy named Norwood McGilvery in an article titled Art and John Doe, which was originally published in the Pittsburgh Architectural Club's The Charette. And then this part of it I'm about to say was reprinted in this architectural forum from May of 1939. So this is what he said. I love the end of it because it, it's like really nice and it like, I think it's great. I go, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And then the wheels fly off for like the last sentence. <laughs> yeah, the last sentence goes off the rails. It's kind of weird. Yeah. This is what Norwood writes. And I think this is right. I agree with this. Art can truly be judged by you, the individual, as far as you yourself are concerned by only one measure. It is not a static, but an energy measure. Do not ask what the art is or ought to be, for this is debatable and will inevitably lead to endless arguments. Ask only what it does, not what it does to somebody else, for this again is only hearsay, but what it does to you. No matter how good a painting may be, by any and all theoretical aesthetic standards, if it does not do something special to you, Mr. John Doe, It means as much to you as a rumor of a love affair on Mars heard in a convention of psychologists. (laughs) Okay. Super wacky ending. Yeah. But the point is, is we look at two different paintings. It makes you feel one way. It makes me feel another. Neither one is right or wrong, but how it feels to you doesn't matter because that might not be how it feels to me. So that is his way of saying art can only be judged by you individually not us collectively. Yeah, as an individual. I mean, and yes, there are critics on those kind of things, but again, they're just talking about what it means to them or how they see it. So it was funny. I asked some people in the office, you know, hey, I'm recording a podcast with Andrew tonight. And this is our topic. And they all eye-rolled it a little bit. They're like, oh, people are going to come for you. Like, like <laughs> they know this is a hot button item. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I don't know that I agree that it, it's really that hot of a hotbed item i don't know do you anticipate we're gonna find out (laughs) yeah i guess we will find out i do anticipate maybe not backlash but i'm anticipating a lot of interaction at least i hope a healthy discussion that's assuming that there's people out there that inherently disagree with our originating position is that architecture is artistic and not art this is true so everyone else if you fall into that camp you think that architecture is artistic and not art you're just going to be nodding your head in agreement for this whole episode, right? All 15% of you. (laughs) (laughs) I think more people agree with our position than don't agree with our position for what it's worth. Interesting. Interesting. You think that's wrong? Yeah, I think that'll be wrong. Okay. But we'll see. We'll see. Okay. So before we get into the arguments for yes and the arguments for no, should we just talk about the other part, which is what about design? Is it art? What makes it different from art? Like one of the things that I think that we need to talk about is If I said, Andrew, why don't you think architecture is art? Or I can answer this question myself. And for me, I can say, 
because health, safety, and welfare as defined by others, municipal bodies, governing bodies, tell me what I can and can't do. It's not a singular vision. It's not executed by me in a single role. And what I'm allowed to do is so controlled by other people that I'm just one cog along the way of what the finished product will be. And that's pretty much part and parcel different from almost every single thing that is classically considered art, a painting, a sculpture, even if it's installation. You take the David, take the Mona Lisa, take the Sistine Chapel. You take any of those pieces that most people would go, definitely art. The Statue of David by Michelangelo, definitely art. Mm-hmm. The Sistine Chapel is painted by Michelangelo, 100% art, right? Yeah. The the building that I'm recording this podcast in, not art. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, the reason my classification of why it's not art is because it's really not, it's not originated from me as the architect. I'm creating something that fulfills other people's purposes, needs, desires, goals, all of those things. Now, even though I'm the one that's orchestrating that, I'm not the originator of the need for the desire for it. And I know that there's some art that works that way. like back when they were painting portraits or things like that. But to me, it's just a little bit different because I'm trying to make things function for somebody else. I'm trying to really deal with the function and the needs of others, which to me, that's not what art is about. Art is about be expressing my own feelings or my own thoughts out into the world. That may be for other people to see, but it's not necessarily for, I guess, their use, or that's not my sole idea, at least the way that I look at art. Okay. I mean, obviously that's a variation, but pretty similar to my position. So I'm trying to remember, did you ever read the book, The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone, which is basically Michelangelo's life story from a very small child to his death? No. Okay. First off, highly recommended. I will definitely put a link to that. It's probably one of my top two books I've ever read in my life. I will concede that part of the reason I loved it is I was in school traveling through Europe at the time, and I'm reading about what he's doing, and I look out the bus window and I go, that's where all the Carrara marble was coming from that he was talking about. Hmm. And then I'm reading about the tombs that he's carving, and I'm going, oh, so he made these decisions when he was carving Moses. And then two days later, I'm in that tomb looking at the Moses sculpture. So it definitely had added profound impact on me that I was seeing it in real time as I was reading the book, right? Confession. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, and I think I remember this correctly, it's a huge book worth reading, but I haven't read it in probably 20 years. I have read it twice. I want to say, and somebody can fact check me on this. I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Was, as I recall in the book, when Michelangelo was hired to paint the Sistine Chapel, nobody told him, what he had to paint. Now, obviously, there would have been some conversations with the cardinals and the pope, and he's like, hey, I want you to paint religious stuff on the ceiling. Clearly, that would have happened. Maybe we want you to tell a, a history of the Bible or something. <laughs> but nobody said, right here, I want you to paint this. I want you to paint Genesis. Yeah. I want that to be reflected in this spot right here. And then I, I want something like, he was not a facilitator. They just said, we want you to paint a story of the Bible on the ceiling. And he's the one that chose what stories to depict. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, I don't think that he let, like he wouldn't let people in the Sistine Chapel while he was painting it. I seem to want to recall. Yeah, it wasn't there. And then it was. That was all you got to see. Yeah. Years later, when it ended, they're like, hey, how's it coming? He's like, well, you don't get to see it. 
Because, of course, they're building scaffolding and there's tarps and stuff. So even if they walked in the room, they couldn't look up and see what they were getting. Mm -hmm. That's how I remember it. Maybe that's not true because I remember part of it was Raphael snuck in to look at what he was doing and saw the style that he was painting in. You know, and of course, this is like frescoes. So they're like having to wet the plaster and then paint. So it was like you had to move fast sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that Raphael kind of jacked his style a little bit and started doing portraits in that style. And it seemed like he came up with it first because- the portraits were done first, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. I want to say 16 years is how long it took him to paint the Sistine Chapel, but that might be because Sistine and 16 are very close. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's why it's in my head. It's the Sistine Chapel, isn't it? Is that <laughs> yeah, the Sistine Chapel. But that tells you he had a patron. He was paid to do a certain thing. I'm hiring you, Michelangelo, to paint my ceiling with Tales from the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it ended, how he painted it, what they looked like. Nobody said, hey, can you move that guy a little bit closer over here? Or you can't paint this one as big as you painted that one because it could fall and crack and hit somebody when they're down here in the chapel and we don't want people to get hurt. There was none of that going on. Mm -hmm. There was singular vision. Yes. Singular execution in his case for this particular example. Right? Architects never have that. Buildings never have that. Yeah, I would say not even if it's your own house, you don't have that. <laughs> And that's yeah. probably the most singular that you ever get to get. Yeah. Because you still have life safety, welfare issues to consider that are, you know what? And here's something else. I wrote this down as maybe something that would be interesting to throw out there. And it had to do with how the public and private sector kind of came together. I'll say after the pre-industrial revolution, when there were governing bodies and municipalities and zoning started to become a thing and they're like, not only are we going to tell you what you need to do so that fires don't rampage our towns, they started saying where certain things had to take place or you can't build this here because it's not zoned to go here. All that is a post-pre-industrial revolution concept. Everything before then, you could argue that architecture and art were more closely aligned because mm -hmm. this is when... Everything was being created in some capacity, it seemed like. Things that were evaluated for their aesthetics and their beauties and that sort of thing. When everything was in service of a common goal, the art and the architecture had a common goal, which was elevating man to be closer to God. And that's a big part of what this is. Look at where all the commissions were coming from. The art, the paintings, the chapels, the palaces, all this stuff was like a demonstration of man's superiority over a certain thing or elevating their position relative to God. That's a big part of what this was. Then all of a sudden, the Industrial Revolution happens. They're like, we can't build our houses too close together. We got to put firewalls between them. We're going to come up with sewer systems. Yeah. Things just started to change. Yeah. And there was no longer this intrinsic idea of what art and beauty could be. So, brother, you and I are not doing art when we design our buildings. Oh, I agree. And I don't want to hear any from any smart mouths out there. <laughs> I go, I've seen your work. It's definitely not art. Yeah, I know. Well. I'm more worried about that. I never claim for it to be art. So, I mean, I would also say that good architecture doesn't have to be, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but it doesn't have to be beautiful, right? Or be considered beautiful, I think. I think good architecture can function well and, and do other things and serve the client's needs and all these sorts of things and truly be good architecture, but it may not be considered beautiful. Well, okay, get rid of the descriptor good, right? Eh, true. Right. So if you just say architecture doesn't have to be beautiful for it to be architecture. 
because it's serving, it has a job to do, it has a role to play. Yeah. It's got parameters that it's operating within. Yeah. The aesthetics are not always a primary concern. Yeah. Or measure, right? Primary measure. Even. Or a measure. That's a great way to put yeah. it. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Chris Smith, Vice President of Global Marketing and Product Strategy with the Otis Elevator Company. Chris is tasked with building marketing strategies multiple steps ahead. He leads all marketing activities for Otis's three major lines of business. He and his team are also transforming how Otis improves the customer journey as B2B customer behaviors continue to evolve. Hi, Chris. How are you? Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Pleasure is all ours because we're talking about elevators today, which is a really important role in our buildings. Founded in 1853, Otis is one of the longest standing elevator companies. Otis products are in some of the most recognizable, iconic buildings in the world, such as the Empire State Building, the Eiffel Tower, and the Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil. So we have a couple of questions we'd like to run through with you, if that's okay. Sounds good. What is Otis's mission and impact on the evolution of vertical transportation, given that history? To me, two words come to mind, and it's safety and seamless. Safety started at the very beginning when Elijah Graves Otis invented the safety brake. Actually, when you think of the last 100 and approximately 70 years since then, that has been our main mission. How do we move people safely? And our track record in the industry is very good. Yeah. The next word, seamless, is looking over that time period. We've introduced more and more technologies, which makes getting through the building a more seamless and effortless journey. When elevators started, it required a lot of human interaction and actually human-to-human interaction. Now, over time, additional technologies have come out. And today, we're introducing the ability to interact with the elevator with your smartphone and with sensors. So through Bluetooth technology, we know where you are in the building and the elevator picks that Chris is approaching the elevator. And therefore, I know it's eight o'clock in the morning and he works on the seventh floor and automatically calls the elevator for me. And when I get on the elevator, pushes that button. So safety throughout our 170-year history, and then more and more seamless technologies being introduced. And finally, I would say that we operate in 200 countries and territories around the world. I challenge you to think of a more global company than Otis Elevator Company. Overarching all this is our vision statement that we give people the freedom to connect and thrive in a taller, faster, smarter world. Yeah, that's terrific. We've spent a lot of time over the last year in my own office talking about how elevators are evolving and mentioning specifically that technology about Bluetooth and calling the elevator so that you don't have to touch buttons. That's a big part of how things are changing. You just launched a new generation of digitally native elevator platforms. What does that specifically mean? So with Gen 3 and Gen 360, we've introduced a connected platform. And I think the easiest way to understand what we mean by the connected platform is to think of your smartphone. Your smartphone can be different tomorrow than it is today based on an application that you download that does something different. That is what's being introduced with the Gen 3 and Gen 360, this digital platform for future possibility of innovation. Nice. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So how will these state-of-the-art technologies change things for customers and passengers? We see the connected elevator powered by Otis One as actually affecting multiple personas. I'm going to start with architects. First of all, we have design tools online. On Otis.com, you go in and you can design your elevator, look at what the cab is going to look like, get your drawings, connect to our BIM Create system, all online. The next thing is that we are introducing 
with the Gen 360, a new electronic architecture. So we're taking the technology from the airline and the car industry, this drive-by-wire or fly-by-wire, and introducing that into the elevator. What that does by removing mechanical components is it actually gives us more room in the hoistway. So now in a typical hoistway that would have held eight passenger elevator, we can now fit nine passengers. We also have been able to allow low overhead and low pit. Now a building doesn't have to have a top hat on it. So a flat roof design is absolutely capable. And even with a low pit, you could put a parking garage underneath the elevator system very safely without having that pit, which supports all the equipment. The next thing we can move on is to the traditional customer of ours, which we have always thought of as the building owner or the property manager. The connected elevator provides what they want, which is proactive communication. What is happening to my elevator in real time so I can notify my tenant? Everyone wants to look smart to their bosses and the tenants is the boss of the property manager. So yes, I know the elevator shut down. I know Otis is on the way. It's all happening in real time. I can give my tenants real-time updates. So it's proactive, it's predictive. I want you to prevent shutdowns before they happen. So now with all of our data, the world's largest elevator portfolio in the cloud, we can do those predictive analytics and fix something before it breaks. Wow. And then when we think about the passenger, Everyone's number one fear, in my experience, is getting stuck in an elevator, even though it's happened to very few of them. But with that, we have a screen in the elevator with Otis One, where now we can provide a video connection for that trapped passenger. Now you can see someone. And that comfort that we call passenger assurance is a key component of Otis One, the ability to call the elevator on your phone, the ability to use gesturing or voice in the elevator, all those enhance the passenger experience. I love it. Very interesting and fruitful conversation. So for more information on Gen 3 and Gen 360 elevators, please visit www.otis.com. Chris, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with Andrew and I today. We really appreciate the time you spent to educate us on what Otis is doing and the difference it's making in our world. I appreciate your time, Bob and Andrew. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us today. So do you have a building? I know we didn't talk about this ahead of time, so maybe you don't. I don't. You put me on the spot. I know. I'll go first. But go ahead. It'll allow you to think if you want. All right. I was going to say, do you have a building that you kind of go, well, if I had to pick a building that was closest to art as possible, what would it be? For me, I'm going to tell you that it was the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. It's as close to sculpture that I think a building could be. Now, I still don't think it's art because when you look at the outside of it, it was formed the way that I've been led to believe that it was created was very sculptural, very esoteric, very, let's make this piece taller here. Let's make this scoop deeper. They created the form. And then after the fact, they inserted the programming Mm -hmm. after the fact. So as a blob, as a thing sitting on the landscape, its form and shape, there was scale to it because it had to accommodate all the programming requirements that were in place. So clearly there was some scalability that had to happen, but they didn't go a, Let's do a little dude jabber here coming out like this because I need to put a janitor's closet up in this corner. (laughs) Yeah. That didn't happen. That came later. That came after the fact when a small army of people came in and said, this is what we're going to do to hold up these shapes and put in the bathrooms and put in. Yeah. And figured out how to squeeze all of that program into that form. Right. Yeah. Okay. So to me, the closest might be Sagrada Familia, Gaudi. Mm -hmm. That would probably be the closest, I would say. That's a good choice. I hadn't thought of that one. But again, to me, that 
it's different again because that's an older building, right? So it does fit into that time frame where we talked about earlier. It's a bit of a different, different idea. Yeah. Well, so I told you that I made the lap around the office and I asked people this question. So Andrew Bennett, one of the owners of the firm here, when I asked him that question, he gave me an answer in like a half a second, which one props for the half second. I kind of thought, don't you have to think about it a minute? <laughs> yeah. He went with Bernard Schumi's part de la Villette. I'm sure French people are dying how I said that, but you know, the little, the red little follies that were all in place and built around, it was during the deconstruction phase. It happened when I was in college. Mm. And so I know in 1990, when I went to school in Europe, nice little plug, how cool I am when I was in Europe going to school, Mm -hmm. we went to it and they don't exist for any other purpose. I mean, they are really an installation. But then my challenge back is I go, I'm not sure that that's architecture. Yeah, that's a whole other debate, right? Right, because most of the focus is is architecture art, but then you kind of go, well, should we talk about is art architecture? Are there any examples where art be considered architecture? And I go, you know what? Bernard Schumi's work, Parc de la Villette, I go, that seems like a pretty good answer of art as architecture. It doesn't serve a purpose other than for you to like engage it mm-hmm. and look at it, and it sits as follies in the lawn. Well, and that goes back to the conversation we had earlier about the bean in Chicago. Right. Is that really architecture? Or for that sense, I could almost say any structure that happens in the Biennale in any, like in Venice or whatever, those are sculptural forms and you can kind of move through them possibly, but are they really architecture? Well, when we brought up Amish Kapoor's bean, the track that we were kind of flowing down was that there is legislation in place for authorities having jurisdiction to suspend certain requirements. The Bean is an example of them suspending ADA requirements, because if you've ever been there, you know that there's not head clearance. (laughs) It touches the ground in just a few spots, and you can walk right into the thing and bang your head. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no cane detection information. I mean, it's a piece of art. And they suspended it because one of the things we also talked about, especially whenever I had this conversation with other architects, we talk about people like Christo and his wife, who ended up doing these massive public installations. And that guy, they had to wade through a boatload of red tape and bureaucratic rules. And remember, I'm sure there's a name for it. If I was better at my job, I would have done the research prior to pressing record for this episode. But do you remember when they had the pink curtains? weaving through Central Park. Oh, uh uh-huh. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% guarantee they had to get permits for all that. And part of what they had to do was, well, is it flammable? Is it going to catch on fire? Are people going to be riding a bike and get garroted, you know, by running (laughs) into one of these carts? Yeah. All that was a consideration. So, in a certain extent, he had governing bodies mandate certain parameters that his art had to exist within. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they did suspend a couple of things since it was temporary. I doubt they had cane detection on both sides of wherever this curtain was running. Yeah. ADA is an easy one to pick on. But that's an argument for why that is more akin to architecture because there were health, safety, welfare considerations and governing bodies that mandated what he could and couldn't do to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me ask you this. One of the things that's on our run sheet that we put, and actually Andrew put it together today. So good stuff here. He has a list. He kind of broke it into arguments for yes. It's very cut and dry. (laughs) Arguments for yes, 
There's no answers. These are questions to ask and discuss under the arguments for yes, and then there's an arguments for no. So let's get into that. Let's talk a little bit about the arguments for yes. Yeah. You have, is it a creative process? Well, of course, of course. it is. Yeah, right? Yeah. Of course it is. And the argument that architecture is art is because it's creative, which that goes back to that first Oxford Dictionary definition. That's one of the cornerstones of that definition was the creative process of it and the aesthetics that go along with it. Mm -hmm. So another argument for being yes could be that it involves artistic skills. I mean, we have to draw stuff. Yeah. Even though nowadays it's computer drawing things, but we have to tell the computer what to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, still there's a set of aesthetic skills that you have to have in order to do it. Right. We might be specifically talking about scale and proportion. When you draw it, there's things that speak to you in its physical manifestation that make you like it or not like it. We deal with color and texture and all those kinds of things as well in that process, right? So it does go beyond just, as we like to say on the show, keeping the water out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This isn't about keeping dry. So that's a good example. Colors, textures, the materials that we choose. It's not just a brick. It's what kind of brick? What's the size of the brick? Does the brick have a texture? Is it wired? Is it painted? Is it glazed? Is it like a Roman brick? Is it a soldier course? Is it a sailor course? Is it a running bond? Is it a Flemish bond? I mean, there's all kinds of decisions we can make using the simple product, which is a quote unquote brick. Mm -hmm. So clearly that's artistic. We also have down here, it can have meaning or evoke emotions. I would say meaning and. I mean, it can do both those things, right? It's not an either or situation because that is what good architecture does, right? It makes you feel a particular way. Like we said earlier, you walk into St. Peter's Basilica, you feel it, mm -hmm. right? I don't think that I'm a very religious person at my core, but you go into St. Peter's, go into St. Paul's, you go into those kind of churches, you go, this religion thing seems pretty legit. <laughs> right. Those yeah. buildings make you feel yeah. a particular way. In awe of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does what they intended to do, and that is to put you in your place before God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I still remember when I was in Paris and I went to a night service at Soccer Corps and they're singing and it's candlelight service. And I thought, this is why people go to church. Mm -hmm. I felt amazing. I felt great. And you know what? I didn't understand a word anybody was saying. <laughs> yeah. But the atmosphere that I was in and the activities that, that that building designed to accommodate the acoustics of everybody singing, it was magical. Yeah. And so 100%, it evokes feelings and emotions. Yeah. Or, you know, going into a great museum. You think about being in some of the spaces in a museum by a piano or the Kimball or any of those kind of things. There's just there's a certain feeling that you get from being in there, regardless of what's on the walls, but just being in that space, you're like, oh, this is something. Yeah. And I will tell you that fairly comfortable in saying that every architect who has pilgrimaged himself or herself to the Kimball looked at the building more than they looked at the art <laughs> in the building. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In our minds, that is a piece of art. There's no question. True. I go, I would visit that building if there was nothing in it. And it was just the building. That's how good the spaces are. That's how the scale, the light, everything about that building. You know, I, yeah. if people push me to say, what's your favorite building? I go, that might be it. Yeah. And I'm blessed with the fact that it's a 40 minute drive from my house. I can see it as often as I want. I would say we probably prefer it where there was nothing in it. <laughs> we don't like stuff in our buildings. 
I know. It's like, can you move that painting out of the way? I want to take a picture. I'm trying of to take concrete. a picture here. <laughs> you seen the concrete? It's amazing. Okay, so here's another argument for yes. If it is speculative, imaginary, or unbuilt, could it be art? If I design what I would say, this is architecture, but it doesn't get built, right? It's conceptual. As a non-manifested design, is that art? And you know what? I'd never thought of that before I read it in your show notes. Yeah. Well, I deal with that a lot, I think, in the academic realm. Because there's a lot of, speculative is probably not the right word, but that creative endeavor of creating architecture, whether it's futuristic or it's based on some theoretical thing, but it's the idea of conceiving architecture, but it's something that's never, ever, ever going to get built or could maybe (laughs) even get built at all. That's where I wonder, well, maybe that is art or that's at least more art because again, at some point it stops, comes out of that person sort of, that's it. It doesn't go through all these iterations to me and doesn't have to follow all these rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay, so I have said this many, many times. I look for opportunities to say this, and this is a hot sports opinion. Mm -hmm. This is coming at it from a different direction, because I've said thousands of times that unbuilt architecture doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Like I go, it's not architecture. If you don't build it, it's not architecture. So therefore, I guess it is art, because it ain't architecture. I go, it's not architecture. Now, all you people in there that always come at me when I say that- (laughs) I didn't say it didn't have value. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying unbuilt architecture doesn't have value. Yeah. I'm just saying it's not architecture. You can't count it and evaluate it and determine its worth if it doesn't get built. Not as architecture, you can't. Now you can evaluate it as art, conceptual, Yeah. right? Which still provides value. Yeah. I don't disagree because I've said that as well. If it doesn't get built, it's not architecture, but- It doesn't count, right? You know what? Come for me, people. I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm firm in my position. And again, I agree with you. It's not that it doesn't have value. I mean, I think it has tons of value. I think a lot of times all that kind of stuff pushes the profession forward in ways that built architecture couldn't ever really do. But unbuilt is, mm-hmm. like you say, it's not architecture. It doesn't have to go through the process. I know. Okay. That may be the hot button topic. <laughs> it's definitely a hot. I don't know if it's hotter or, or less hot, but it's definitely one of the ones that gets people fired up. This is a weird one because it's an argument for why it is, but in a very kind of roundabout way. And it has to do with what about plays or movies or music? These are artistic creations. Are they art? So if we think about the arts, music, architecture, some people say poetry, all that kind of stuff. If I look at a movie, somebody wrote it, somebody directed it, somebody designed the costumes that are for it. Someone designed the sets. The actors portrayed the characters in the story. The film editor cut all the parts together. The music guy. All the things it takes to get a finished product on the screen. Mm -hmm. Does that discount the fact that it was done by the hands of many in the vision of many people? I'm sure we've all heard it. They go, that's a piece of art. Like some of these Hitchcock movies, they're like masterpieces. Yeah. Or music too. Most music nowadays takes multiple, multiple people to create it and put it together. Unless your name's Beethoven. (laughs) I said these days. (laughs) Yeah, I know you did. But yeah, I mean, I agree, right? And I would say that because part of our argument is, is right, that it's not a singular vision, that architecture is not a singular vision and doesn't work that way. But then we have all these other things that I would say, in my mind, I would consider those art, 
movies, music, any kind of thing like that, that that's art, but it does involve a boatload of people to put it together. Yeah. Well, people say the arts, and this is typically the sort of stuff that they're referring to. Yeah. You know? So if you go, if I'm going to let those be art, then why wouldn't I let architecture? Exactly. Well, it still goes back to the governing bodies. Nobody says, you can't play F sharp in this song. Yeah. Right? I can do whatever I want. We still don't have the same governing bodies that put the restrictions for health, safety, and public welfare on top of music, for example. I would say the movies, but they'll say, no, you got to make sure that nobody was hurt during the film of this movie. There's certain, you can't light that guy on fire. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you can't have that dog being shot to death. You just have to do it in a way that it's not a real dog. You know, all those kind of things, right? So there's not a limit to what you can, I guess, of course, somebody could argue if there is a limit, but your creativity is not really limited or regulated by much. Yeah. You can just CGI something that you can't do in real life. Right. So in one sense, they're very similar because we've discounted, not as in less valued. I mean, we've eliminated possibly that something could be the vision of a horde of people from being art. It doesn't require a singular vision for the end product to be construed as art. So we've kind of chucked that one out the window because I'm willing to say Beethoven's ninth or the 11th or any one of the classical music people that I could name off. They had singular vision. They wrote it and people played the notes. They mm-hmm. say, play this note. And they say, play it this fast. Yeah. <laughs> play it this loud. I mean, <laughs> this is singular yeah. vision yeah. and it is 100% art. And so is Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes. Yes. <laughs> Jokes, people. <laughs> so again, I would not say that. I don't think you could draw a direct corollary between the arts that include plays and music and movies to what architecture is. Yeah. Even though we've conceded that the army of people doesn't discount it. Okay. So let's look at the arguments for no, which we've kind of touched on as we shot down all the rules possibly for yes. So clearly we can't even make an argument for why it is like we're not supporting our reasons for yes. We're shooting down our reasons for yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one is architecture is not art because it's regulated by rules, principles, laws, et cetera, and it's not free will or you don't have the complete freedom to do whatever you want. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why architecture is not art. There's a lot of rules and regulations that make us do things that we may not want to do as quote unquote artists, architect artists, if that's what you want to call us, like you mentioned earlier. The hallway's got to be this wide. You've got to have this many exits. And you're like, but that ruins the feel of the room if I have to have these four exits instead of one that everybody comes in from the one way and all that kind of stuff. It blows it out. Yeah. My artistic vision requires this high school to have hallways the width of one person and they all had to walk in a single file line. Yeah. You know, now there are people out there who I think could successfully argue. I'm not so sure it would change my mind, but they could say, Just because I have a restriction on corridor width or exit requirements doesn't mean that I can design in such a way to where those things are not hurdles to my artistic vision. And I think that there's a case to be made for that, for sure. I can hear that argument for sure. But unless you're, I don't know what kind of art you're doing if you're like, I need to put in 50% toilets for men and 50% toilets for women because that's my vision. They're like, that's not your vision. 
You have to do that. Yeah, it's like saying, well, this painting, you have to use 25% of this color, 10% of this color, 5% of that color, 50% of that color. Now you have to make art. To me, that's not how art works. Those aren't parameters that you're given, right? But I could do that and still make art. It may not be my vision anymore. It's mm. not what I want to do. Yes. Right? But And I guess to me, that's what makes it art. But go ahead. But that's the argument, right? Yeah. If you say, hey, you have to use these eight colors and these percentages. And I go, okay, could I make art following those rules? Yeah, pretty sure I could. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a comment on Bob Borson. That's just a, someone could do- If you were a very good artist, yes. Or painter. Yeah. Look, even if I like, for every 1%, I did a little one centimeter square and I just go, all right, if I have to do 12% blue, I have to fill in 12 squares. 12 squares, yeah. Even if I just made a painting that was just colored dots, whatever it needed to be, you could argue that that's art. This is true. We're not arguing if it's good art or if it provides value or if it speaks to me in some way. Because mm. the truth is I could probably paint that painting. I could hang it up on the wall. If I hung it up somewhere legit and people would actually like, like if I just hung it up in my house and I go, what was this? Paint, paint by numbers. Would your daughter paint that? <laughs> Sixth grade? Yeah, but if I hang it up in the Louisiana Museum in Denmark, I think that's where that is, if I remember that correctly, people are going to go, who did this? This is groundbreaking work. It moves me. Yes. It speaks to me. Because that's what really part of what we talked about with art is, what does it say to you? It might say to somebody, this guy is a terrible painter, but somebody might say, oh, (laughs) the colors that he used in the sequence and the, like, oh, it's the best. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it in such a way, like I'm making fun of people for how they might evaluate art. That's not my intention. My intention is to say, you're free to let any piece of art speak to you however you want. That's the difference. Some people might love it. Some people might hate it, but that's true about any piece of art. Mm -hmm. Anybody would say, this is hanging up in the Louvre. It's widely acknowledged that this is an amazing piece of art. I might look at it and go, it's awesome. Andrew might look at it and go, it's garbage. Crap. (laughs) It doesn't speak to me, right? So that's part of the esoteric nature of what art is. Exactly. Architecture still has to perform. Mm -hmm. Here's another argument. I'm not sure if it's on the list. Sculptors might say, my sculptures have to perform. So when I design the David, I need to make sure that the neck I carve can support that giant head that I put on the statue. The arm that he's holding doesn't break off. There's things that they have to do that make their painting. Hey, I got to prep my canvas with gesso so that when I paint, it comes out properly. Mm. There's things they have to do to make it work. Those are rules that are fundamental to the execution. A sculptor can't sculpt literally whatever they want, or it would maybe break or not be able to support itself or it wouldn't work. I suppose. There's no, I suppose to that. That is- I mean, they could. Gravity. It would just break. Yeah, but then it's not what they wanted. If they say, I'm going to have this one inch- sculpture hold up this 10 ton block with a toothpick it's not gonna work (laughs) okay they can't just gravity the realities of our existence this is true gravity that's the one rule they have tell them that they can't do literally whatever they want well gravity art isn't about just doing whatever you want okay so let's move on to one that talks about it's created based on the needs of others that that's part of the role that architecture plays and the emphasis on that sentence is the needs it's created based on the needs of others. And I might be willing to give you an eye roll if somebody said, I need this painting. <laughs> yeah. It might make me feel good. In fact, I have a painting in my house. I look at it. It makes me feel good. Musician and Cat by Anor Spence. Love it. 
whole story behind how I got it. Makes me happy when I look at it. I don't need it. I want it. I like it. It does nice things for me. Mm-hmm. I need to have a roof over my head that keeps water from landing on me. I need that. Yeah. Or it's just, you know, the needs of other program. We need a school. We need a, we need a museum. Whatever their needs or desires are, when I put that together, it was more about not very often is it that we as architects are the ones generating the program and the list of needs for this, if you're going to call it work of art that we're about to make, we're usually not the people that are generating that. Somebody comes to us and says, hey, I need this to happen, or I want to have, I want to do this building, I want to do that building. It's not like we're just sitting around in our studios making up stuff and selling it to people because we thought it was a good idea. It's someone else that comes to us for a service. Yes. Unless you're design build. Well, but yeah. Or you're the Pope going to Michelangelo and saying, I need a tomb. Yes. But that's not many of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, generically speaking, the vast majority of us are service providers and somebody else says, we have a need for a school here and you're the person who can help us create it. Yeah. I don't know that art works that way very often. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's the whole architecture is originated by someone else's goals and money and their needs. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of architects are saying, we need a school right here and I'm going to pay for it. Exactly. And make that happen. And if somebody likes it, they can buy it for me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put all my own time, materials, and labor and yes. money into this. And then if somebody wants to buy it, I will sell it to them. I'm going to put a little card on the corner of the school that says, School, Bob yep. Borson, 2021, $7.25 million. Yeah. Exactly. $14.8 million, right? It's ridiculous. We're having fun now. You have on here, this is, again, an argument for why architecture is not art, is that its main goal is not to entertain or to be appreciated. Yeah. Clearly, there's loopholes in that. Yeah, there is. Because we know some architecture is to be entertained. And it, so, sure, there's things that probably meet that description. But the vast majority of our built environment, when I get in my car and I drive home, pretty much everything I'm going to drive by did not get built and is not evaluated from an entertainment and appreciation standpoint. Like, that's not the reason it exists. It has a job to do. It's playing a role. Appreciation is not one of them. It has functions. There's functions that are supposed to go on inside of it. It serves a purpose in that regard, not just to either be seen or heard and to evoke an emotional response of some kind. It has functions that it has to fulfill. Sorry, that was what I was looking for. <laughs> I was like, I know there's one last yeah. word coming. Yep, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... So I'm struggling. We're, I don't know, 50 minutes in, late, high 40-something minutes into this, and I haven't come up, maybe this is my shortcoming, I haven't come up with a reason why I should consider modern-day architecture as art. What am I missing here? I don't know. Again, I don't think it's art either. I think maybe it's just the difference, or could be the difference in our definitions of art. Because, I mean, I... I consider myself somewhat of an artist. I tinker with stuff and I tinker with paintings and drawings and things like that in an artistic sense, but I don't consider architecture part of that world. I think it's just too many rules and regulations and there's too much technical stuff to it, I think, to me. I would challenge that to a certain extent. I would say I like to think that every project I work on 
has parts of it that are art. Hmm. But that's just one part of it when I squint my eyes a particular way <laughs> and say, on this very narrow way of evaluating all the things I've done, hmm. this is art. This is beauty. This is vision. This was unnecessary just to create a moment of appreciation. I do that all the time in my projects. Yeah. But that's only one part of 10,000 parts. Yeah. So maybe that's part of what we're looking at. And you can say, well, just because it's not the entirety doesn't mean that art. You know what? Yes, it does mean that. Exactly. <laughs> it does mean that. Yeah. Part of it can, of the 500 ways that I evaluate a building, a structure, whatever, one of them can be art. I can go, yes, that's art. But it's so much more. It transcends art, what we're doing, because there's so much more to it. That's why I say it's artistic and not art, because art is not the only criteria. That comes down to how you define what art is. And you have to get so loose and so broad in your definition of art so that a built building with all its moving parts and all the roles that it play and the lack of singular vision, and the 800,000 people that play a role and all that stuff, for it to get into the definition of it starts and ends with those three letters, A-R-T, is this art? Yeah. No, it's artistic. Yeah. You need the other letters. Yeah. You need the istic, right? Yeah. To me, I, I mean, again, we may get beat up, or I may get beat up over this, but I don't know that there's much art in electrical systems or mechanical systems or plumbing systems. I don't consider those to be art. And those are in every piece of architecture when I have to deal with all those things. And that is not art to me when I'm dealing with all that during my process of creating a building. Yeah. I wonder if the hang-up is, is that just because it's not art doesn't mean it can't be beautiful, doesn't mean it can't move me in a certain way, doesn't mean it can't make me feel certain things. I mean, I think it can do all of those things, but that doesn't necessarily make it art. A certain pattern of leaves or a flower in my yard or a sunset or whatever, it can do those things too. And you got to really expand that definition to say, well, that's art. Yeah, you know what? And people are going to come at you for that. So send all your hate email to andrew.hatesarchitecture.hawkins at gmail.gov. Yeah. Go for it. I think at this point, we're just going to be repeating ourselves. So what I would really love, I mean, I would truly, truly love for someone to broaden my horizon, broaden my seemingly narrow view of what art is in a way that sticks. I would love that. Please do that for me. But since I don't want to just keep saying the same thing five different ways, I'm going to say that that's the end of our is architecture art episode. No, is the answer. But that's the answer. According to Andrew. <laughs> yep. Okay, I'm kidding. That's fine. We both kind of feel the same way. We didn't really move off our position. So I think that we both are still at the same point we are when we started the conversation. So let's move on to this episode's Would You Rather question, which Andrew also put together. Oh, that was just a placeholder, but was okay. It? No. Hey, look, it's in there. You own right. it, so it's going in. <laughs> and what's funny about this one is like, it looks purposeful based on- Yeah, it kind of was. Other topic, it looks purposeful. I think the answer on this is so absolutely obvious that if people don't answer exactly the way that I answer, they're wrong. 100%. 100%. All right. Okay, here's the question. Here's the question. I'm going to let you answer first, even though you wrote it, because I just went out on a limb by saying there's only one right answer, my answer. I know normally, normally the way it works, 
is whoever wrote the question gets to go second. Gets to go last. Yeah. Right? But my job is to tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I'll go first if you want me to. No, no, it's okay. I'll go first because I'm pretty sure I've got a different answer than you, although I'm not really sure now, but go ahead. Okay. You know what? I'll guess your answer first before I tell you what the right answer is. Okay. So here's the question. Would you rather be a famous painter during your lifetime or a famous author after you have died? Andrew's going to say author after he died because he likes the idea of being an author. He likes that. That was when we had the whole, I want to be in a cabin in the middle of the woods writing. Yeah. You were going to write my stories, actually, is what was going to happen. <laughs> That's what you were going to write, my stories. Uh-huh. That's 100% the wrong answer. Yeah, that is my answer. That's my gut answer, but I agree. It only has to do with the fact that I would like to be an author. I would like to have been known as being a writer and an author. But of course, the idea of being famous during your lifetime and the perks that all come with that should be the correct response. 100%. Yeah. Because you get to live the life and, you know, hopefully those things live on past your death. That's right. That's where it starts to get to be the questionable part. In my mind, I was thinking that it's a pop culture artist. And so they may not stand the test of time, but I know where you're going with it. And I know where I came from. (laughs) So the people in my office, I told it to John Orfield, who I told this to, one of the other owners. Apparently, I just talked to the owners of the firm and we just talk garbage and don't work. That's what it sounds like. It's not true. Getting lots of work done. This is after hours. So I told him the question and I told him my answer and he kind of shrugged and goes like, duh. And I said, yeah, this might throw Andrew for a loop a little bit because normally my position is what is my behavior going to do to make life better for all mankind? (laughs) Right. And so the idea that I'm a famous author after I've died means that maybe I've secured a future for my family and my children or my children's children down the road. Mm -hmm. But part of me goes, I could accomplish that as a famous painter during my lifetime. I just don't spend all the money. Don't do whatever the trappings that come along. Leave that in posterity for my generations of descendants to appreciate. The only reason why I thought for a half second why being a famous painter during the lifetime would not be good Being famous sometimes is a drag in like real life. Mm -hmm. I still remember when I was much, much younger man and I worked at a movie theater. And this is back before movie theaters became like these super megaplexes. And in Dallas, there was a famous wrestling family, the Von Erichs. Dude, I love the Von Erichs. Right? So I was working as the cashier. This is back in time when there was one cashier, like sold tickets, just one person. Mm -hmm. It was me. One person. He had a person, so Kevin Von Erich, I think is who it was. It was Kevin or mm-hmm. Carrie. I can't remember which one it was. I didn't actually see him. He had a person come to the window, bought all the tickets in the theater for the movie. Like, I don't want anybody to think it's just for me. They went in, opened up the exit door at the back of the theater, so he came directly from the car outside through the back, directly in the movie theater, to watch this movie by himself without getting bothered. That would be such a drag. That That's your life. And my wife was telling me just the other day, we have a city council member that's in our neighborhood and she's pretty active. And there's only like 12 city council members in the city of Dallas. So it's not like there's an army of them. A whole lot of them. Yeah. Says she went to the grocery store and saw our councilwoman. They walked in about the same time. We know her well enough to recognize her on site. We go, that's our city council member. She got stopped immediately by people starting to ask her questions. Enough people knew who she was at the grocery store that... They got up all in her business while she's trying to buy, you know, her pimento loaf. Groceries, yeah. My yeah. wife said she bought all the groceries, left. I was at home working, and I texted her, and I go, hey, 
I forgot Thai basil. Can you get some for me? She goes, yeah, I'm at the car, but I'll go back in. She goes back in, buys that. Our city council member was still in the exact same place, was still the one thing that she had picked up so far. It's like in 30 minutes. She hadn't been able to make it past one thing in the store. Yeah. And people were still like all over. Yeah. And I go, that's the part of famous that I think, I don't love that. You know, I don't love, like I can take a little (laughs) bit, but then I want everyone to go away. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so that would be the drag. But here's the other reason why, like if you said famous author versus famous painter, like if we flip flop, you're the famous author during your lifetime and a famous painter after you died. Yeah. I'm not so sure how I would answer because the thing about being a painter is you could be painting wacky stuff because we didn't say you're a good painter. You're not doing Caravaggio paintings necessarily. Yeah. You're doing something that it's hitting the right spot at the right time, Mm -hmm. which could be kind of easy, maybe. (laughs) 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 So it suggests that maybe I don't have to do a ton of work either. I got you. You know? But writing books to you, that's a ton of work. I've written the equivalent of like 18 books in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. total with the number of blog posts that I've written. Mm -hmm. Or one George R.R. Martin book. But yeah. You know, I did look it up once and I want to say that the number of words that was in like Lord of the Rings or something was 75,000. And I think at that point I was up to like 278,000 yeah. words that I've written on my site. Yeah. And that was like six years ago. Yeah, I think. I don't remember if it was that long ago, but I remember talking about it. Yeah, looking it up or something. So yeah, I want to be the famous painter during my lifetime mm. and all the trappings that come along with being famous and having money while I'm alive. That's what I want. You know, the thing about it, though, let's be honest, in reality, probably, unless you're like Stephen King, I'm trying to think of an artist that's alive. I was sitting here and I'm thinking about Banksy, but see, nobody knows who that guy is. So that's perfect, though. He's got all the trappings. I know. Without actually having to deal with the fame part. Exactly. Nobody would know who you were anyway. <laughs> Most people don't know what, you know, who's going to pick James Patterson out of a, at the grocery <laughs> store, right? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, we've talked about that. So maybe it might not matter and it would be okay. The only thing that draws me is that it was the author. So if we had flipped it to the author now, I'd have picked the author now and taken the fame and been happy both ways. <laughs> All right. Well, so, so I'm going to say that I still won. <laughs> Here's why I won. I predicted your answer correctly. Yeah. I gave you a reason for why my yep. answer could have been different, but curveball wasn't. <laughs> okay, that's enough foolishness. But I predicted your answer too, so. I know, but you didn't predict the curveball that I threw before I gave the answer. For a second, you thought I could go that way. But your answer didn't change. No, it didn't change. It's technicality. <laughs> okay, look, let's wrap it up. There you go. Another episode in the record books. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as Andrew and I clearly did. Thank you for joining us for episode 80 is Architecture Art. We would like to thank our sponsor, Otis Elevator, for their generous support of today's episode. Special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get hot and spicy new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please consider leaving us a comment, and I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star Italian painter, Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio is my favorite rating. 
Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious artistic episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>